0: Well, good evening. Let me invite you to turn with me to, uh, in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where we'll take up uh, Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians in uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Last week, we looked at some troubling things in 2 Thessalonians 2. I say that they're troubling because Paul spoke of a troubling person and a troubling event, both of which are yet to come. The man of lawlessness and a great rebellion or apostasy. Of course, Paul didn't leave us without hope in that discussion, where he was speaking primarily about the coming of our Lord and the signs that precede His coming. Nevertheless, it's troublesome; it's troubling when we contemplate those things and the difficulties that will attend God's pe- that will come upon God's people in those days when that man of lawlessness comes. But this week, we're going to see that Paul turns his attention more squarely upon our hope, not only the hope that we have in the coming of Christ, but also the hope that we have in light of God's love and faithfulness. As he encourages us with that hope, he commands us, he challenges us to stand firm and to hold to the truth that has been delivered to us. So if you found your place in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let me invite you to follow along with me as I read and. Verse 13, and I'll read to chapter 3, verse 5. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm, and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Father in heaven, we pray that you would indeed direct our hearts to your love, and to the steadfastness of Christ, that we might, in dwelling upon your love and faithfulness, trust more firmly in the life, uh, as as we we go through this life to which you've called us, to trust more firmly in your grace and in the hope that you've given us, the hope of Christ's coming, the hope of salvation, the hope and, and, and confidence that you indeed will uh, sanctify us by your word and through the, by the work of the Spirit. Father, we pray that you would increase our faith and our hope in these ways as we hear your word and as we consider your word from this letter written by Paul so many years ago and yet so applicable in our lives as well. These things we pray, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we find in this passage as I said, a command from Paul to the Thessalonians as he challenges them to stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter and i suggest to you that in our text tonight that that's the central command for the thessalonians but also the central command for us that we are to be a people who are steadfast in our faith that we stand firm in a particular way by holding fast to the gospel and the word as it as it uh as we've received it as it's taught to us from god's word But I also want you to see that this command is anchored. It's founded upon God's love and faithfulness. That the sure foundation of this command in this text is God's love. And we can see that these two ideas are central themes in this text simply by considering the vocabulary before us. You look at verse 13 and how Paul addresses the Thessalonians, saying, Brothers, beloved by the Lord. And then we look down to verse 16 and see Paul as he begins in this benedictory statement saying now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word and once more at the end of the text we see another benediction as Paul says may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ in other words from the start At the the beginning, at the end, and right in the middle, we see an emphasis upon the love of God. We also see an emphasis upon the faithfulness of God, especially there in uh, chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Paul states it quite clearly and emphatically, but the Lord is faithful, putting the Lord in contrast to those who do not have faith. And he is sure, and he declares his confidence as a result that God will establish the Thessalonians, that he will guard them against the evil one. And he can state this confidence because of God's faithfulness to his promises, saying, and we have confidence in the Lord about you. And he even prays that the Lord himself would direct the Thessalonians, their minds and their hearts in the same way, toward the steadfastness, that faithfulness, if you will, of Christ. And so you see that the love of God and the faithfulness of God, these are central themes in this text, and they will form the foundation for this command that Paul gives us. So i want to look a little bit more closely at this foundation and understand how it is that paul sets it before us and proves in fact god's love and faithfulness toward the thessalonians and towards us he starts with what i might call a special proof of god's love a special proof of god's love for the thessalonians and it's seen in his election of them unto salvation and his calling of them to glory his election of them to salvation and his calling of them to glory and this is the same then in our lives as well we know God's love for us because he has chosen us and he has called us now the doctrine of election has two important elements first that God chose those whom he would save God is the subject of that sentence he is the one who makes the sovereign choice and he chose those whom he would save but there's a second aspect to election that we must know As Fred Zaspel writes in an essay on this subject, that God's choice is prior to our faith. His choosing precedes our response, the appropriate response and the necessary response. One response that we must make. But his his choice is logically prior to our faith. Now, Paul taught this in many of his letters. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6, You see this idea there that God chose us and that choice that God made is one that he executed before the foundation of the world. And it was a choice unto something that we should be holy, that is sanctified, set apart, holy and blameless before him. This is a sign of his love, as Paul says in Ephesians. In love, he predestined us, which is another way of speaking about that sovereign choice that God chose us, he elected us, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. God predestined us so that we might become children of God. We can find it elsewhere in other letters of Paul. And so it's safe to assume that it was an important part of his preaching as well when he came into a city like Thessalonica. I'm sure that they would have recalled Paul's teaching on this subject uh, as he reminded them. Of that which he spoke to them that which they heard from him by a spoken word in this text however paul does not explain the doctrine of election he doesn't seek to persuade us of the truth of the doctrine of election he rather presents it as evidence of god's love for the thessalonian believers and therefore a reason for his gratitude toward god look at the opening verse again but we ought always to give thanks to god for you brothers beloved by the lord Paul makes a statement about what he should be doing. Not just him, but Silas and Timothy with him, that those who labored among the Thessalonians, they ought to be giving thanks to God for them. And why? The reason is because God chose them. He says that God chose them as first fruits. Here what Paul is saying is is he's likening them to the first fruits that one would collect at the harvest. Uh, God chose the Thessalonian believers in this way. Um, uh, as first fruits to be saved, that you could say in Thessalonica, they were the first converts. They were the first to come to faith in Christ. They were the first crop that, that was reaped from that harvest in that city. But they were also among the first fruits in the whole history of the church as well. Of course, this, Paul came to Thessalonica probably in the late '40s or the early '50s a. d. So uh, the church had been around uh, for some seventeen or so years since Peter preached at Pentecost, and yet it was still relatively early from our perspective in the history of the church or in the story of this great harvest, you might say. God chose these men and women in Thessalonica as first fruits of that harvest. And for Paul, it was very clear that God had chosen them for this, as we've seen in 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians, because there was very clear proof very clear evidence that they really had been chosen by God in the life that they were living, in the way they responded in faith to the gospel and in the way that they continued to hold fast to that faith in spite of persecution, and in the way that they demonstrated their faith and their love through works of faith and labors of love that Paul could call to mind and give thanks to God for. This was evidence for Paul that they had been chosen by God as first fruits to be saved. That is, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Very simply put, their sanctification, God's sanctifying work in their lives and the reality of their faith was clear evidence to Paul that God had indeed chosen them. This was a sign of God's love, his electing love that he placed upon the Thessalonians. Now, sometimes when we think about this teaching about election, election, this doctrine of election, and we think about God's sovereignty and our salvation, it causes us a, a, a little bit of anguish. We agonize over the question, has God chosen me? And what if he hasn't? As if there is no way to know the answer to that question. We say, well, you know, it's not up to me at the end of the day. At the end of the day, there is a response of faith. And faith is something that you do Belief is something that you do. Now, of course, we know that faith itself is also a gift from God. That God produces the conditions from which a true response of faith can rise by changing our heart, by causing us to be born again. And in that work of regeneration, as we are born again, we we, we are then able to respond in a true and real faith. But that doesn't change the fact that we really do respond with a true and real faith. God made the conditions, set the conditions that are, that are possible, in fact, that, that guarantee that one will respond in this way. But faith then becomes a proof that God, in fact, has chosen us because he's gone then and done the thing that he does for those whom he elects. In other words, sometimes we imagine that, that, that sometimes uh, this process will break down for some people, that it, that God won't see it through to completion or that we will fail to hold up our end of the bargain and it won't quite work out for us or that maybe we do hold up our end of the bargain and somehow we can't be sure that, um, that God has actually chosen us and that, that's not the way to think about it. Every person whom God has chosen will respond in faith, will persevere in that faith, remaining steadfast, faithful to the end. Every person whom God has chosen will work out their faith through works of faith and labors of love. It's a guarantee. There's no breakdown in that process for any person who is truly in Christ. And so Paul can look at that and say, I know that God has chosen you, Thessalonians. The evidence is abundant in your life. And we can look at the same thing, not because we become such holy and perfect people, but because we can look and see the reality of faith. We really do believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whom God the Father sent for our salvation. To give his life as a sacrifice on the cross. Whom God really rose from the dead. If you can confess that. You can say that. I really do believe that. We'll see then. The evidence of that faith in your life. You'll live it out. Not by you know, being the greatest Christian who ever lived. And, 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 and doing the greatest deeds that have ever done. But by that simple. Uh, working out of the faith. That we see in the life of every Christian. Loving one another. Paul saw that in the Thessalonians. I see that in your lives. That's how we know. We don't have to agonize over this question. Has God chosen me? When we see the fruit of that choosing, that electing love in the lives of one another and in ourselves, as God sanctifies us by degrees through the Spirit, as God causes us to persevere in the faith to which he's called us. Then we know, here's the proof, God has loved you. God has loved us. And we see that evidence in our lives. It's not that we know that God has loved us because he's made us so rich or so famous or so successful in all of our earthly endeavors. We know that God has loved us in those simple ways. We see the fruit of his electing love in our lives. That's how Paul knew that God had loved the Thessalonians. It's why he could say that they were beloved by God. And it's why he could Give thanks and why he, in fact, had a responsibility, an obligation to always be giving thanks to God for them. It wasn't Paul's great preaching that brought them to faith in Christ. It was God's electing love worked out in history as they responded to his call in the preaching of the gospel. And then that, too, then becomes evidence of his love for them. For the gospel came to them. God called them through the preaching of the gospel, and this was a further proof of his special love for the Thessalonians as they heard the gospel and they believed it. Just so, in our lives, faith is an evidence of our election, of of our being chosen by God, and so faith is also an evidence that God has loved us. When we believe, we know that it's not because we first loved God, but that he because he first loved us god does not just call people through the gospel preached though he calls his people to something notice those prepositions of through and to look at what paul says there in verse 14 to this he called you through our gospel through the proclaimed word through the preached gospel that's how that's the means through which god called them but there's a two that'll come next so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he called them to, or that is, the, you could say, the purpose, the, 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 the purpose of his calling of them. So we, Paul looks back all the way to uh, the foundation, before the foundation of the earth, and looks at God's choice, his election of the Thessalonians, and says, that's proof of God's love for you, and I can see the evidence right here and now in the present. And then he looks all the way down to the future, The glorious hope that we have, and that the Thessalonians had and have, and the coming of Christ, and the glory that uh, they will share in, and that we will share in with Christ, and as we look to that glory that in which we will share, we see also a sign of God's love for us, for He hasn't just called us to nothing through the gospel; He's called us to something where He's given us great and glorious promises. That we will share in the glory of Christ. It's an awesome thing. Paul has referenced this glory as a central aspect of Christ's kingdom in his first letter. He's also shown us that this glory will be fully apparent to all at Christ's coming. In this second letter. And when we think about a a broader uh, uh, collection of Paul's writings. We think of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul has talked to uh, the, uh, the early Christians and talks to us very specifically about that glory and the way in which we'll share in that glory, that at Christ's coming, we will be transformed in a moment. Right now, we are being transformed by degrees, from one degree of glory to another. But in a moment, we will be transformed. We will be completely glorified and share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's unimaginable. We cannot even imagine what it will look like or be like. But we do know that it will be glorious. And God has called us to that, this calling is effectual. This calling is not the, just the general call where someone goes out and says, believe the gospel, but the effectual call seen in the lives of the Thessalonians and in the lives of all who believe, that they respond to God's call. And so it's clear that God has called them to something wonderful and glorious. And there then is a proof, a sign of God's special love the Thessalonians, and in so much as it's true in our lives, and I believe it is true in your lives, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, then we know that it's a sign of God's love for us as well. And it's on that foundation that Paul can then go forward to say this, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. We heard that same message declared this morning as we Considered it from Luke 11 and Luke 12. As Jesus encouraged his disciples to persevere, to trust him, not to fear the world, but rather only to fear the Lord and also to trust the Lord as the one who provides for all our needs. Here, likewise, Paul encourages and commands these Thessalonian Christians to stand firm, to hold fast to the traditions that they received from him and from those who labored with him whether it was by a spoken word or whether it was by a letter. And that's what we're to do as well. Now, we, must, we should remind ourselves from last week that one of the primary problems in Thessalonica had been caused by false teachers. Just look back up to the beginning of chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, and you'll see it. You'll see there that Paul was refuting what may have come through a letter falsely attributed to him. Or through some other means by right as, as, uh, as uh, maybe it was a, a spirit or a person speaking as though he were a prophet. Or uh, maybe just a misinterpretation of something Paul had written. But whatever the cause, there had been um, something that misled the Thessalonians into thinking thoughts that were contradicting what Paul had taught at first. And so Paul reminded them of what he had taught them in person. What he had spoke, what they had received from Paul in a spoken word, you could say. And you see that there in verse 5 of chapter 2. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? In other words, everything that Paul was unfolding in verses 1 through 12 was not new material for the Thessalonians. He was just giving them this one further benefit by putting that material in writing so that they might have it in a more enduring way than their memory could provide. Nevertheless, Paul had spoken to them of those things. We may also recall how in his first letter, he responded to questions by reminding the Thessalonians that they already knew what they needed to know. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, he wrote, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. And the evidence was abundant because they were loving one another. They knew what they needed to know, and yet Paul would give them a little bit of encouragement a little bit of instruction, a little bit of help in those matters that they seem to be struggling with. But their struggle was not rooted in the fact that they didn't have complete information. When Paul was with them, he had taught them well concerning these crucial and central matters of the Christian faith. So again, in 1 Thessalonians 5.1, he wrote, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for, to have anything written to you. And he'll go on to say, you, you know full well You know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In other words, you know what you need to know. So on that basis as well, he tells them, hold fast to that tradition. Hold fast to that teaching. In a sense, he is like an admiral who sends a message to the sailors aboard a solitary frigate facing threats and difficulties in a distant station saying, I will come with overwhelming force. Just don't give up the ship. Keep following your orders and instructions and hold fast. That is what Paul essentially is saying to the Thessalonians as they are uh, in some senses feeling perhaps isolated. In other senses wondering if they have a complete set of orders, a complete set of instructions, complete information. Paul is saying you do. You have the traditions fully delivered. Now, hold them fast. And for Paul and the Thessalonians, they could all recall a time when he was physically present with them. and He was instructing them by his own mouth. They could remember those things in their own life. And this was true in all of the churches where Paul had ministered. We might look at this and say, it would really be wonderful to have as a, as a guest speaker, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Perhaps Paul or Peter or one of these guys might come and speak to us sure we don't speak their language but those guys spoke in tongues so we'll be good right that would be surely wonderful but we have an advantage that the thessalonians didn't have they had first thessalonians and they just got hot off the presses second thessalonians and we've got a lot more than that we've got the whole completed word of god the new testament Now there's some traditions where they'll insist that we do need to hold to the tradition not just what we find in God's word but also a tradition that has been stewarded and handed down through an institution uh, all the way through a succession from the apostles straight till now and I just want to say that that's just not something that we have. We don't have any institutions in this world who have faithfully stewarded some kind of oral tradition down through 2,000 years apart from those, that stewarding of God's word that we have in this book. The work that men have done and women too have done to steward this book for us so that we faithfully have the word of God before us when we open this book, whether it's through the translations we have or simply even works like compiling concordances or making software that helps us to study it and making sure that we have uh, a faithful representation of the original manuscripts in the original language all of that work is a faithful work to steward the word of God to steward the tradition down through the ages but it ultimately is the word of God that we look to because we don't have people walking around who've memorized some bit or piece of something Paul said or something Peter said that, uh, that uh, isn't recorded for us here Nor do we rely on a tradition that's built up over time as a ruling authority in our lives, a tradition that is based upon uh, something written by uh, maybe a church father writing in the year 250 A.D. or something like that. That's helpful. And that tradition serves us well. We should avail ourselves of what we can learn from faithful Christians throughout history as we look to the writings of Martin Luther or John Calvin or John Wesley or even go back further and think of Irenaeus and Justin Martyr and Augustine and many others we can learn a great deal from them but there that tradition is not the tradition Paul's speaking about there's a way of speaking about that tradition it serves a ministerial function not a magisterial function what does that mean well it means that it doesn't rule it's ruled by scripture and in so much as it serves to help us to understand scripture better well and good and that tradition is valuable and it serves to preserve the tradition through the ages. But in so much as it displaces what we have in God's word, it's not faithful to the tradition handed down by the apostles. We ought not to follow that. The ruling tradition is what is contained in God's word in the complete, completed uh, uh, collection of what we have in the Bible. That's the tradition that we have that represents the tradition that Paul speaks about here as he encourages and calls upon and even commands the Thessalonians to stand firm and hold to the traditions that we've been taught either by a spoken word in their case or by their letter. And in our case we can say in the whole New Testament and Old Testament all that we have contained in this book, hold that fast. This will be so important for us as we step into the future and we think about the things that we might face, whether we face the turbulent times in our life that Paul spoke about last week that we looked at in 2 Thessalonians in the beginning of chapter 2, or what he spoke about in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, or whether we should just simply live our lives the way that Christians have for the past 2,000 years and uh, go to our, uh, our graves still waiting for the coming of our Lord. We certainly will face trials. We will face people we even do face in our time people calling us to abandon the word of God even people who stand behind pulpits encourage others to abandon the word of God what do we need to do we need to remember what we've been told to do which is to stand firm and hold fast stand firm and hold fast even 20 centuries on down the line keep holding fast to the word that we've received the scripture. Now Paul knows that this command, uh, the keeping of this command ultimately does not depend upon whether or not we have enough strength to do it. It's like a child who is uh, who is hanging to the edge of uh, a steep uh, ravine after having been a little reckless and climbing at the edge of the ravine and calls to his father and says come and, and help me dad. His dad comes and grabs him by the arms, and he says, hold on, don't let go. But at the end of the day, and that child's going to squeeze with all his might, at the end of the day, it's the father's strength pulling that child up off the edge of that ravine that's going to keep that kid from falling, not the kid's ability to pull himself up. We don't have the strength to stand firm and to hold fast in and of ourselves, but we're not the only ones who are holding fast. God himself is holding us fast, and so Paul can then go into this benediction, this prayer, as he says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, in verse 16. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself, the one who is able to hold you, the one who is able to hold you fast, may he and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And you can imagine that child on the edge of that ravine and the father grabs him he speaks words of comfort, Son, I've got you. And Then he establishes him, firm in his grasp and firm on the ground. Here Paul prays that same thing, May the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, himself, and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. This is a beautiful prayer and we read it often, because it does comfort us, even as it comforted them so many years ago. So we include it in our benedictions, when we conclude our services together. But it's not just beautiful words. It's a real prayer. It's a real prayer that has real power as God answers that prayer, because God is the one who loved us, and He is the one who is faithful to fulfill His promises. Now, we should note some other things about this prayer. We should note that Paul is not just concerned about those who are gifted in speech, as our brother Scott pointed out to me on Wednesday so helpfully. He's also concerned with those who are gifted in good works. Not just with those who are gifted as teachers, evangelists, or even as encouragers, but also with those who would work out their faith in a more practical way with their hands and in ways that they show their love to others. In beautiful ways. Paul is praying that God would establish them in every good work and word. You see, he desires that the Thessalonians should encourage one another, therefore, both through the words and the works, and likewise for us, that we should be a people who aren't just about encouraging others through preaching or through teaching or through a uh, word fitly spoken, though those are very important parts of our life together, but also through the things that we do, by which we show our faith and Love, those labors of love that Paul spoke about earlier in this letter. We also need to note that Paul prays that the Lord would accomplish this in their lives, that he would establish them in this. In other words, even as he calls the Thessalonians to live and act in a certain way, he also trusts in the Lord to do it, knowing that only God can accomplish these things. Now, how can Paul be so confident and bold so as to pray in this way? Again, it's the same answer. Because he knows God's love for his people. And this brings us then to another proof of God's love. What I might call a more general proof of God's love for his people. Look again at verse 16 as Paul prays that the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father would do this work of comfort and strengthening. He refers to God in this way. God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. God our father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. What I want you to see about this is that God's love is never a mere sentiment. It is always an active love. So we can always point to something that proves God's love, some act by which we know that he loves us. He has chosen us. He has made promises to us he has called us he has comforted us he has established us these are actions that show that god loves us in fact that god is love and we can point to those things in this case paul focuses attention on the person of god the father and the display of his love for us in the comfort he has given us through the gospel I think that we can learn a lot of important things from Paul and the other apostles will call upon some other texts as we seek to pray to God according to his self-revelation as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. You see Jesus taught us to pray of course saying, "Our Father in heaven." And so we normally pray in this way, but and there's nothing wrong with addressing God the Son in our prayers. There's nothing wrong with addressing God the Spirit in our prayers. We worship one God who has made himself known to us as the triune God. But when we address the Father in prayer, or the Son in prayer, or the Spirit in prayer, we would do well to call to mind the unique role each person of the Godhead fulfills in our salvation. It's true that God's works, where he acts outside of himself, are undivided. It's one work. But that does not mean that we cannot distinguish the role of the Father in the one work of God in saving us, for instance, or the role of the Son in our salvation. Have you ever sat down to pray and prayed something like this with a wince? Our Father in heaven, thank you for dying for our sins. Or, I mean, am I the only one who's said that? Now, I don't mean this is a grave sin. Don't worry. I do that. I'm sure many of you have done that and will do it in the future. But it is a way of misspeaking. And so I want to learn from Paul as we look here. How we might pray in a more Trinitarian way. We can learn from Paul and not just Paul. But we'll learn from the Apostle John as well. The Father did not die on the cross. The Son became incarnate. And went to the cross for us. The Father sent the Son. To go to the cross for us. You see that very slight distinction that nuanced distinction and yet so you see that it is a single work a one work of god and yet the role of the father in sending the son can be distinguished from the role of the son in going to the cross son became incarnate and gave his life on the cross this one saving work and it all the one undivided work shows the love of the father the son and the spirit for us and yet when we address the father in prayer or we address the son in prayer with the Spirit in prayer, we can distinguish their role in that work as we give them praise, and as we make our requests, and as we express our gratitude for what God has done for us. Consider this language, which will help us from some other texts. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Notice how Paul speaks of Christ as the one who loved us, not to say that the Father didn't love us, but the way in which the act by which Christ's love for us is known and uh, the act that gives us something to imitate in our love for others is in the giving of himself, for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Again, Galatians 2, verse 20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, as he looks to the Son and, and declares the faith that he has in the Son, He speaks of the Son of God as the one who loved him by giving himself for Paul. And then 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Clearly we're speaking about the Son as the one who laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And so if I'm going to pray something like, thank you for laying down your life for us. It's appropriate and right to address that gratitude to the son who is the one who laid down his life for us that's not to deny the father's role or the unity of the father and the son and the spirit but it is to acknowledge his triunity unity as we pray but notice how Paul and we'll see John as well speak of the way in which the father has loved us here in this text and we'll see a couple others from John's writings the general proof of the love of God for us, in this text in Second Thessalonians, is seen particularly in the father's love. Consider John 3:16, which I know you know well. For God so loved the world that He gave his only son. So the son gave himself. The Father loved the world that he gave his only son. We don't say the father gave himself. the father gave his son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Again, John writes in 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And you can see then that language, the way in which Paul can very fluently speak of God and to God in that triune way. As I've said in other contexts, Paul is fluent in the language of Trinitarianism. In the same way then, of course we were quoting John there, but we see Paul here. Paul speaks of the love of the Father for us and the comfort that he gives us. Now, this act of comforting us is a unified act of Father, Son, and Spirit. But Paul turns his attention specially to the Father, it seems, when he thinks of the comfort that God gives to his people. I think perhaps because there is a clear association between the giving of comfort and fatherly affection. As he writes in another letter in Second Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God we know the love of the father for us in the comfort he gives to us through the gospel of Christ the fellowship of the saints and the hope of glory this is a sign of God's love for his people and it is a basis the basis for Paul's prayer that God would comfort the Thessalonians just as it was the basis for his command that they should stand firm in the traditions they've received. And it should be the basis for our prayers that God would do the same among us. This comfort that he gives us as he establishes us in every good work and word. This comfort that he gives us as well, along with the good hope that we have through his grace. Now, from here then, Paul turns his attention To himself, in a sense, but not in a selfish way. But as he has prayed for the Thessalonians, both in his letters and told them how he prays for them, he calls them also to pray for him. We find that Paul has requests of his own, and he'll make declarations concerning his confidence in God. But first, he asks the Thessalonians to pray for him in the work to which God has called him. He says at the beginning of chapter 3, finally, brothers, Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. I find that last uh, sentence to be the understatement of the century as the Thessalonians well knew. Not all in their midst had faith. Um, But this is the reason why Paul is facing great difficulties himself. There are wicked and evil men who seek to do him harm, as we know well from the book of Acts. Now, Paul doesn't pray for his own worldly comfort. He doesn't pray that God would uh, deliver him from these wicked and evil men so that he might be famous, or have money, or never get beaten, or never get imprisoned, or never suffer in any way. Paul's primary concern in this prayer request is the word of the Lord And the honor that is due God's name as his word is honored. And he prays that he might be delivered from the hands of wicked and evil men. Not so he can have a comfortable life. An easy ministry. But rather so that that very thing that he's seeking. The word of the Lord to speed ahead. That that might happen. That very thing that happened among the Thessalonians. You see that at the end of verse 1. Has happened among you. He wants the word of the Lord to be honored in the same way. And so it's clear that the way in which the word of the Lord will be honored is when people receive it as God's word, as the Thessalonians had. And as they receive it in God's word, they respond with faith that grows evermore and love that abounds evermore and a hope that is steadfast. Faith, hope, and love that we saw in the Thessalonians. That's what Paul prays for. Now, Paul had a unique calling. He was commissioned as the Apostle to the Gentiles. When God first called Paul after the Lord appeared to him on the Damascus road, he said about him in Acts chapter 9, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul knew this, so he made it his ambition as he wrote to the Roman church saying, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. Paul wanted to go to places where no one had ever heard of Christ and preach the gospel that the, that the, that, that the word of God might spread, that the word of God might be honored, that more and more people might come into his kingdom. Because God had chosen him for this. He had declared that this is what Paul would do. And he also declared that he would do it through suffering. That's why Paul asks for this very prayer request. He knows what God wants to do, but he invites the Thessalonians to join him in that ministry as what we might call in our own day prayer warriors. Even though Paul knows what God's going to do and what God has declared he will do, Paul doesn't treat it like a fait accompli, uh, finished work, and say, well, therefore, we have no need to pray. It's already fixed. It's already finished. He prays about this and he invites others to pray in the self-same way. Sometimes we think that because God is sovereign and because he's ordained certain things, that uh, what's the need to pray? I just note that Paul did not think this way. Neither did he want the Thessalonians to think that way. Therefore, he asks the Thessalonians to pray for him. Not that he would be spared suffering, as I've said, but that that, that, that through him the word would speed ahead and be honored. It's his chief desire, and I hope that it will be our chief desire as well. Now, Paul, of course, is concerned with being delivered from the hands of evil men, and he does have confidence that God will do this very thing. In fact, his confidence is not just for himself, but his confidence is also for the Thessalonians. We can see that then as we proceed in this passage, looking in verse 3. The Lord is faithful, he says. He will establish you... thing that paul just prayed may the lord establish you he will establish you and guard you against the evil one he will establish you and guard you against the evil one just as paul prays that he might be delivered asks them to pray join him in praying that he might be delivered from the hands of evil men he's confident that the thessalonians themselves will be delivered not just from evil men but the archetype of evil satan himself We have confidence in the lord about you he can go on to say that you are doing and will do the things that we command this should be our confidence also god is faithful he will deliver us he will protect us he will establish us and he will strengthen us this does not mean he will keep us from all persecution and suffering it does not mean he will necessarily keep us from being delivered into the hands of others in the sense that they might even arrest us or even mistreat us or even harm us physically or even kill us but rather not delivering us out of those things rather he will deliver us through those things God will carry all his people safely through the challenges of this life and as he does so he will comfort us he will comfort his people as he delivers them through every single trial that they face bring them safely into the eternal refuge of his love, both now and forever. This he has promised, and he is faithful. Just as he said in the text we heard this morning, as Jesus spoke, that we ought not to fear the ones who can only kill the body, but rather the one who, after he is killed, can cast us into hell. If we fear him and we trust him, he is faithful, he will carry us through, and we know that we will find that eternal refuge that he provides for us, Where we will be safe from all harm and we will be brought into that glorious eternity for which we hope therefore let us trust him with the same confidence that paul himself had when he said and we have confidence of the lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command And as we pray like paul prayed may the lord direct your hearts to the love of god and to the steadfastness of christ for as we fix our eyes on his love, and as we consider his faithfulness and the steadfastness of Christ, we will be assured as well and have that same confidence in the faithfulness of God. We will be assured that he indeed is doing and will do the things that we are taught to do and commanded to do in Scripture through us and in us until that day when he takes us home, whether through death or through the coming of our Lord that glorious day. So we trust and so we pray that the Lord would do what we know he will do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our faithful Lord and God, you have loved us with an everlasting love. How can we ever thank you enough? How can we ever praise you enough for this glorious, undeserved, gracious truth your love for us you chose us before the foundation of the world you called us through the preaching of the gospel you worked in our hearts to renew our hearts through the new birth so that we might respond with a faith that we would have never responded with had you not first loved us we thank you lord and we pray that you would establish our hearts then that you would do as Paul himself prayed for this early church, establish us in every good work, that you would comfort us, that you would increase our hope, good hope through your grace, that you would direct our hearts to your love and the steadfastness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name.